Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Losing the Plot. I'm your host Leo Robertson and for every episode I have a conversation with a new person. They're often a writer, they don't have to be, they can be any kind of an artist really, um, but I will have enjoyed their work and so I want to talk to them and we talk about their work, we talk about life, we talk about anything and everything, we lose the plot together, hence the title of the show. We start, as always, with the latest news from Aphotic Realm. So Aphotic Realm now has its own Patreon page. Uh, and you can become a patron where as little as a dollar a month, you get access to Aphotic Realm's story archive. That's a whole bunch of digital stories that they uh, will make available to you through their website. You'll get early access to episodes of Losing the Plot to any uh, videos that they produce and other kind of multimedia material. You can vote on future magazines, uh, like the what's the theme going to be. You can also vote on anthology themes and you'll get a shout out in all future Aphotic Realm magazines and anthologies. These are collector items that will have your name in them for just a dollar a month. Should you wish to upgrade to $3 a month, you will get all of that plus digital downloads of all the books that Aphotic Realm puts out. That is such as uh, the Tales from the Realm. That's their. Uh, that was the anthology of best stories from year one. There's Grim Dark Grimoires Volume One. That's an anthology of grim dark stories edited by A. A. Medina. That's going to be a series, so you'll be able to get more of those, I'm assuming. And you will also get the latest anthology, which is an anthology of Appalachian horror edited by Bo Chapel. And that's the second piece of news that I have here. Uh, let me tell you about this anthology of Appalachian horror. The woods have many secrets, but rooting them has its consequences. Take a trip through America's backyard with eight strange and sinister tales of Appalachia. So once again, that's edited by Bo Chapel. It features stories uh, from eight different, uh, some established, some up and coming uh, horror authors. Do check that out. I wrote this thing. I hope Let's talk about it, yeah. Let's lose track. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Talking to Leo Our guest this episode is Mark Allen Gunnels. He's predominantly a horror author, uh, most recently of Bookhaven and Other Curiosities, which is a collection of short stories out now from Crystal Lake Publishing. This is his 10th publication. He also has The Daylight Will Not Save You, another short story collection coming out with Unnerving later in the year, and two novels sometime after that. He's showing no signs of slowing down, and he also just seems to keep getting better. So. I hope you enjoy our chat. I hope you will check out his work. Here is my chat with author Mark Allen Gunnels. Where are you calling from in the world? Uh, South Carolina over in the United States. Cool. Is that where you're from? It is. Uh, have you lived there all your life? Born and bred. <laughs> what has what's kept you there? Uh, complacency, <laughs> um, family. Um, I mean, my husband and I sometimes talk about moving elsewhere, but, but you know, there, 
we live in a, a nice area. Um, there's a lot going on here. We like theater. There's a lot of live theater in the area where we live. Uh, we're close to the mountains in North Carolina that we can go up there and hike. And so I do hope to explore a little more later in my life, but so far, yeah. Um, South Carolina has been it. Okay. Um, what about holidays? Where do you go? Uh, our favorite uh, vacation destination is just down in Georgia, Savannah, Georgia. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Mm. Um, are you familiar with Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil? Uh, yeah. That's it's that city where that all took place. <gasps> oh, okay. But it's a nice historic city with a lot of beautiful homes and uh, a lot of great restaurants and shopping, and it's near the beach and. Uh, we go there at least once a year. Cool. Um, do you think... Did you go to StokerCon? Have you ever been to any of those? I went to the... Before they split them up again, I went to the World Horror Convention um, the year that they had it in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, because that was within driving distance of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to be on one of the panels and meet some cool people, so... That's the only major one I've ever been to. I've been to some small local conventions that, you know, weren't as elaborate, but I did get to go to the World Horror Convention when it was in uh, uh, Atlanta. That's pretty cool. Does it? Is that when you most feel like a writer? Um, I guess I most feel like a writer when I'm actually sitting here in this room writing, but that was really... I, I was very nervous to be on the panel and I was on there with uh, like Jonathan Mobbery who does all those uh, Joe Ledger zombie books and everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought I'm not going to have anything to say, but yeah, I was pretty relaxed. I, I, I said some things that were semi-intelligent, made some jokes that made people laugh. So I, I was worried I wouldn't feel like I belonged there, but once I was up there, I, I pretty much felt like I belonged it's funny that sometimes that you can do something for such a long time and then somebody is like, oh, maybe you can talk to me about it. And you're like, oh, I don't know if I would have anything to say about it. I've only done it for like a decade or something. <laughs> and I I did it so long before I was publishing anything and there was no one who cared to have me talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. So that when I finally started publishing, I was like, why does anyone care what I have to say? <laughs> It's like when somebody asked me to sign one of their books, I'm like, why do you want mine? Mm-hmm. I usually make a joke like, well, if you're going to try to sell it on eBay, it'll only get you like 10 cents more. <laughs> yeah. But do you feel like that was maybe good training for the hard work of just having to write every day? I think so. I did it so long before I ever got published. I was really just doing it because I loved it. Mm -hmm. And so now, even though I am getting published and it's nice and I like, you know, getting money for it, I'm still doing it because I love it. Because I know from all those years, I'd still be doing it even if I wasn't getting any money for it. Mm -hmm. So it keeps me grounded in the, because right now I have to get up at like 4.30 in the morning to fit in writing into my schedule. Wow. uh, but because I'm still doing it because I love it, that makes it a little easier and it doesn't feel like I'm doing a chore. 
if that makes any sense. Right, that's great. Yeah, and I, th- I imagine it must be rewarding that you're able to write stuff that you love and get that published. I do, I do like that, and that's one of, I think, the great freedoms of the small press mm-hmm. is that there's less pressure to like write to a formula or write the same thing that you wrote before. Like I can just write whatever I want to and then find a publisher that's interested in that kind of thing. Yeah, very good point. Absolutely. So this marks the occasion of uh, publication of Bookhaven, which is what number of collection is this now? Let's count. I have my books in here. <laughs> Ten. I guess this is the tenth collection. That's incredible. I, I mean, I'd I'd read uh, Flowers in a Dumpster before. Um, okay. But I didn't know there were so many in between. Um, so how do you think that you're... Now that you're on your 10th collection, like, or, or this is your 10th publication, like, do you find that your interests or concerns as a writer have changed over time? Um, I don't know. I've always just really wrote whatever came into my head. And that's always been kind of a, an eclectic, diverse mix of things. So, you know, I may have a horror story. I may have a, I, you know, all my collections usually have a few non-horror stories in, in them as well. Um, this one has some poetry in it. Um, so I've always just not worried too much about I don't really think about genre or categories when I'm writing. And it's just always sort of been that way. I do favor horror definitely more than anything else. Cause that's sort of what I've always been passionate about, but I feel like I've always just written whatever I felt moved to write in that moment and just tried to do the best job I could with it. Hmm. Does that, do you favor short stories then? And uh, I know you're a fan of flash fiction as well. I am. Mm -hmm. And I do have a particular love for the short story form. I always say that's probably my, my truest love. Um, I enjoy the challenge of novellas and, and novels, and I've published quite a few of those as well. But short stories are what really... I feel like I have a natural instinct for them and they are what probably brings me the, the most joy, which is why I do have, I mean, I have literally hundreds upon hundreds of stories. And I mean, I actually have another collection coming out this summer from unnerving press Mm -hmm. called the daylight made you. So, and that even, I still have plenty more that I've never published anywhere. So yeah, I'm, I'm just, always returning to short stories i i'll never turn away from that because i i do love those with a particular passion where do you think that the passion for horror comes from you know i tried to answer that question earlier this year um, i had the opportunity to do um a tedx talk and i did it on um the title was how i learned empathy from watching horror movies as a child Mm -hmm. Um, because I do believe very strongly that true horror doesn't just elicit empathy in the audience, but it, it hinges on it. It hinges on pulling an empathetic response out of the audience. And as part of that talk, I was trying to think like, 
because I mean, from a very early age, I was just a complete horror fan. And I don't, I can't say exactly where that comes from. I do know I was exposed to it early. I do have a memory of when I was around five. My family watched the original um, Salem's Lot miniseries when it first aired. And they let me watch it. And I do have a memory of that. And then my mother actually let me watch a little bit of The Exorcist when I was probably around 10. (laughs) And I didn't get through it because I ended up hiding behind the sofa and she sent me to bed. Mm -hmm. But, um, But there's something about it really, more than other stuff I may have watched at that time, it got a visceral response out of me and got my adrenaline pumping and... It stayed with me long after I saw it. And that sort of thing, I think, kind of made me addicted to it. And um, so all my life, that's, you know, I like other genres too, but that's the one I always come back to. Hmm. And do you think with this collection coming out, do you feel like you've improved as a writer across these books? I do. I mean, I look at some of the earlier stuff I've published and I'm proud of it because I'm, I'm actually proud of everything I've ever put out. I won't put something out if I don't feel proud of it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I look back at the early stuff, it's definitely more rough around the edges. I was still, you know, learning stuff about structure. Um, and I, when I look at something like, you know, Bookhaven that's out now mm-hmm. and look at some, you know, some of the early work, I definitely see that I've gotten more polished. I've learned more about, you know, structure. I've learned more about pacing. Um, So it doesn't make me think less of the earlier work because when I look at that, I see that is the best I was capable of at that point in my journey. Mm -hmm. But I definitely think that I have, I have gotten um, better and more polished along the way. And do you have stories that well, you, you talk about just writing what's in your head at the time? Do you have stories that you have saved until you've built up the skills to write them? Um, I actually have. Um, particularly last year, the last half of the year, um, I had just finished writing a novel and I had written several novels and novellas in a row. Mm-hmm. And I realized I hadn't been writing a lot of short stories, which is as you know, what I love. So I was jonesing for it. So the last six months of last year, I dedicated to nothing but short stories. And I had all these ideas that I had been carrying around in my head for years. Um, I mean, in some case, many years. And it was, and I felt like I was at a place that I'm ready to write these now. Like they've been gestating. Um, Maybe I wasn't quite ready. I didn't feel I had the skill to get it done. And for the most part, I was, um, very happy. And I was happy that I waited because I feel like I wouldn't have been able to tell them in the same way if I would have written them when I first had the idea. So, um, cause I've done that before, actually the title novella in the new collection Bookhaven, um, I tried to write it, uh, many years ago and it just wasn't working. I don't think I was at a place yet in my just education and development and I couldn't make it work. So I had to wait a few years and then I tried again and then it just sort of all clicked and I knew how I needed to structure it. So sometimes you do have to wait for 
you to catch up to the idea you have. Hmm. How do you feel about um, leaving a project like, you know, sometimes you're in the middle of a project and you're like, I don't think I can keep writing this, but do you, do you push ahead to write something every day? Do you find that that's important and that if you take a big break in the middle that it, like you lose the flow of it or how, how does that work for you? Um, I'm sure it works differently for everyone, but for me, there are several books that I have that I've stopped in the middle of and come back to later, in some cases, years later. Mm -hmm. um, that's not always the case. Sometimes I get an idea and I go straight through it. Um, but I'm not above if I'm writing something and it feels like it's not working or it's getting stale, I'll break off from that and I'll work on something else. Uh, sometimes it's just as simple of, as taking a few days to write um, some flash fiction that can sort of get my mind, you know, turned a little bit, um, especially flash fiction. It gives me a sense of accomplishment because I can usually write a story in a single sitting. So I feel like, ah, I've got something accomplished. And that sort of clears my head to go back to the work. Mm -hmm. Other times I've stopped halfway through a novel, put it aside, written an entirely different novel and then come back later. And usually I look back over what I've written and sometimes it's just a matter of I needed that time to figure out some solutions to problems I couldn't figure out at the time. Um, I don't have anything that I stopped in the middle of right now that I haven't then gone back and finished, though. Um, like I said, there have been a couple of cases where it was a few years before I went back and finished them. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, sometimes I do just stop and start a whole other project and then go back and finish that original project later. Hmm. Um, so let's talk about Bookhaven. Um, in the title story, uh, you've got this future in which all digital books are suddenly erased. Um, yeah. And then I was thinking, if that happened, which book or books would you miss the most? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> um, there are certain, it may be cliche, but I'm a huge Stephen King fan. He was the writer that really excited me in my formative teen years. And there are certain of his books. Misery is a book I go back and reread periodically. Um, and I feel like I would definitely miss that one. Um, stories like uh, Boy's Life by Robert McCammon mm -hmm. or there are several Joe Lansdale um, books, particularly The Bottoms and A Fine Dark Line. Um, Books of Blood by Clyde Barker. Um, oh, there, there are so many. I, I was going to name them, but yeah, it would it would be rough for me if suddenly all the books were gone. There's a character in the story who has the idea of improving stories that they recover. So they're they're finding these stories again, and then they think maybe I can do a better job. Are there any? Yeah stories that you know of that you get really frustrated with and you think they should have been written differently somehow? Um, I tend not to. There are books where I'm not, I don't feel satisfied by the ending. Um, but I'm a big believer in it's the storyteller's story to tell. Mm -hmm. I don't have to like all of them. I don't have to be the target audience for all of them. And I don't have to be satisfied by the conclusion of all of them. But it, it is the story that the author 
wanted to tell if it's the ending that author wanted, I tend to have respect for that. So even if it doesn't work for me, I can still respect it if I feel like that is the story that that author felt compelled to tell. The only time I would get frustrated is if, um, if, for instance, if in an interview I heard a writer say they had to change the ending to satisfy their publisher but weren't really happy with it. Because um, mm. I've, I've heard some things like, uh, I think Nancy A. Collins had talked about a novel she did called Tempter that they wanted her to change to fall more in line with her earlier vampire works. Mm-hmm. And she sort of did it against her will. Like that sort of thing frustrates me because then I know I'm not getting the author's vision but again, if I feel like I'm getting the author's genuine vision, even if it's not the way I would have wanted the story to go, I can respect the author for telling the story they wanted to tell. In so in this same story, there's like there's lots of other texts mentioned. There's things like Romeo and Juliet, Alice in Wonderland. Um, how did you choose which texts you were going to reference? Were they favorites of yours, or were they ones that you thought readers would think were popular? Well, that's a good question, and. A lot of the times it would just be, for instance, with Romeo and Juliet, it's just what is the most probably recognizable story with the tragic ending that somebody may want to change. Mm -hmm. And I I immediately thought of Romeo and Juliet. Um, I threw Alice's Adventures in Wonderland in there because that was the first book I ever read for pleasure. Just as a child on my own just for the sheer joy of reading it. Uh, My sister actually had a copy that she'd gotten from the library that she left lying around. And I picked it up and just got completely swept away in it. And so I definitely wanted to work that in there because in some ways the novella, it's my attempt to talk about the joy of books, the joy of reading so since that was the first one that really put me in touch with that, I definitely wanted to put that one in there. How would you define how you read now? Is it mostly for pleasure? Or are you also studying things? Um, I'm still very much a pleasure reader. Um, sometimes when I've read a particularly good book afterwards, I may sort of go back and think like, wow, and I can sort of say, think the structure of this was very impressive and I can learn something from that or their use of character or dialogue or the way they did this twist. But when I'm actually in the the midst of reading it, I'm not really super aware of any of that. Mm-hmm. And I think the best books make you not aware of any of that. So anything that pulls me out of the story to think, hmm, interesting how they structured this, I'm not a fan of because I don't want to be pulled out. I want, maybe I can appreciate that after, but in the middle of it, all I want to do is be swept away by the story. So I'm still very much a, um, a pleasure reader. Hmm. Yeah. I, um, I totally agree. I think that that's the best way to get better as a writer as well, really is just to find stuff that you enjoy the most. Yeah. I, I definitely think the more you read, I mean, obviously, the more you write, the better you're going to get. But the more you read, that's also going to help inform you as a writer. Mm-hmm. And I, I relate to how you say you when you first read something, you just want to enjoy the book. But then again, I guess, do you do a lot of rereading? 
Um, I don't do as much as I used to, mostly because I have a book addiction and I just <laughs> keep buying books. So I feel almost somehow unfaithful if I'm then just going back and reading something I already read when all these other books are waiting. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, um, I re- I've reread in the last couple of years a few Stephen King books that I had not read since I was a teenager. Um, and definitely it's interesting the the older I get, the more I can appreciate certain things. Like I reread it for the first time since I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I definitely much more enjoyed the adult sections of the novel than I did when I was a teenager mm-hmm. because I couldn't relate to any of that yet. I mean, I still loved the novel when I was a teenager, but it had like another layer to it because now there are certain things that adults, those adults were going through that I've been through. Um, so I do reread, uh, some Stephen King. Or, um, I've reread some Clive Barker. So sometimes I go back to my favorites and reread them. Or like I said, just something I haven't read since I was a teenager. Cause I'm curious to see what I might get out of it now, but more and more lately, I'm not doing a lot of rereading again, just because I mean, right now I'm, sitting next to just a mountain of books because I've run out of shelf space and they're just stacked up everywhere. Yeah. Uh, well, I totally relate to that. My laptop right now is propped up on a ton of books. And, um, (laughs) are there any books that you've read that you feel like you enjoyed the experience of them so much that you would never reread them because you wouldn't want to unpick them? Um, not necessarily. There are some books I've read, um, for instance, um, the girl next door by Jack Ketchum, mm-hmm. which is a book I absolutely thought was brilliant and it was powerful. And it, like I said, it was just brilliant, but I don't know that I would ever go back and reread it because it was also very painful and traumatic. Just, I mean, he got so much into the raw trauma of that story that I appreciate it and applaud it, but I don't know if I would willingly like go through it again. Um, I feel that way about certain movies like uh, boys don't cry, like great movie. I've never seen it since the first time. And I I don't know that I would want to go through that again. Here's another question I had about this latest collection. So I started reading the story Welcome Home and then I thought, wait, I think I remember this premise. Then I realized it was like the the thrilling conclusion to the trilogy that you'd started in Flowers and a Dumpster. Um, yeah. Which is really cool. Um, but how how much space was there between those stories and why did you think to write a third one? Um, well, there was quite a, a lot of stories. The original story, uh, which was just called Welcome, I wrote probably back in the early 2000s um, and then maybe five or so years later, I wrote the second story, Welcome uh, Back. Um, and the reason in both of the stories were in Flowers and a Dumpster, the reason that I ended up writing a third one, other than the fact that I did get an idea for a third one, um, was when Flowers and a Dumpster came out, I was already talking with uh, Joe at Crystal Lake Publishing about doing another collection with them. Mm-hmm. And he had suggested it might be interesting if I did some follow-ups 
to stories that were in Flowers in a Dumpster. Mm -hmm. And I did have those two stories, and I did have the inkling of an idea for a third one. So, you know, and I wrote that, so, I mean, more than a decade from the time I wrote the original one, I was writing that one. Um, And there's actually a second story in Bookhaven that's a follow-up. Um, there was a story on Flowers in a Dumpster called Survival of the Fittest, post-apocalyptic story. It, it was written, that one was actually written when I was in college. That's how long ago that was, mm-hmm. um, back in the early 90s uh, or mid-90s. But I wrote that, I was really into like Xena and Buffy and Ripley and Sarah Connor back then. So I wanted to write my own kick-ass female character. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wrote this post-apocalyptic story. I back in my college days, I had this idea that I was going to do a whole series with this character and her sidekick. Um, but then I never wrote anymore. So when he talked about doing a follow-up, I thought this is my chance to finally do that, to take this story I wrote in college where I dreamed of doing a series. So I wrote the follow-up for Bookhaven, which is called Evolution. And then I actually wrote a third story called Mutation, which will be in the collection that's coming out this summer Mm -hmm. what does it feel like to revisit these characters like in um welcome home for example this third story of this trilogy did it feel like did it feel to you like these characters were just trapped in the house waiting for you to write something else for them to do a little bit um because I I did when I approached both those stories, I worried like, can I get sort of back into this world? It's been so long, um, but I don't know. It's like they were waiting for me. Like when I went back, they were there, and they were just like, okay, and this is where we are now. Um, I I felt that a lot with um, Welcome Home. I felt it particularly strongly when I did Evolution. Um, it just felt like they were right there for me and we're sort of wanting to know what had taken me so long to get back to them. I mean, I've seen a little bit on Facebook that you are, I mean, there's so much kind of chat right now about uh, diversity and representation. Is that a particular thing that you consider when you're writing a new story? I don't know if I consider it. It just, it sort of comes naturally to me. Um, I am a, you know, a, a gay man. So I tend to write a lot of, gay characters, not exclusively. I do have, you know, many stories that do not feature gay characters, Mm. but, um, but I I do believe strongly that the more, the more diverse the genre becomes, the stronger the genre becomes. I feel like when you get diverse voices, whether it's LGBT or, um, you know, racial minorities or, you know, women, when you bring in different voices, you get different perspectives, you get different life experiences, and that can put a different twist even on a familiar premise. Um, so I just think it's exciting to see the genre getting more diverse because I think it's just going to give us better and more unique stories. So when I sit down, I don't think, okay, I'm going to write a story about a gay character. Like I said, that sort of stuff just sort of comes naturally to me, but I am excited that I can do that and still find a place in the horror genre because that was a big fear of mine growing up in the eighties. I didn't really see 
a lot of diversity in the horror genre. Mm. And I didn't know it would be a place for me there. I mean, it was before even like Clive Barker was out. So I just didn't see any representation that would make me think, oh, they're going to accept you. Um, so I'm excited that we've gotten to a place where you you can find a lot more diverse authors in the horror genre. Interesting. What was it like when you discovered Clive Barker? Um, I discovered Clive Barker before I knew he was even a gay man. Um, but I had heard a lot about him. I read some of his books of blood, which I thought were amazing. Um, and so I started reading some of his novels. I read Weave World, which was like, it's one of those stories where like, if you try to explain the premise, it sounds ridiculous, but like he completely made me buy into it. Um, I really strongly fell in love with him. And then, um, in the early nineties, when he, um, really came out publicly, it was exciting to me. Also, he released a novel around the same time called Sacrament, uh, which I think was his first novel that had a gay male as the lead character. Um, some other ones had them in supporting roles and it was on, I think in the back cover and his, um, bio it, it mentioned that he lived with his lover and like it was very exciting for me because i'm like here's a author with a major publisher a mainstream release he's out he's got a gay male lead the biography doesn't hide from it and that was an exciting time for me because it it felt almost like i could see a door opening and like maybe i do have a, a shot to get in there what about the idea of a community in general, like horror writing community, for example, do you think that's a thing? Are you a part of that? I, I sort of feel it now because I'm not able to travel as much and I haven't been to as many conventions as I wish I could go to. Um, I feel like, you know, when you see a lot of those pictures from the, like the recent Stoker con there, there are those people who get to see each other at all the cons and have, bonded. I don't have that as much, but just the online community, I, I definitely feel it. I feel accepted. I feel like there's some great people out there. There've been some writers who have been very kind and gracious to me. Um, John R. Little has always been a big supporter of mine. Like before I even knew him or had any connection to him online, he was saying really nice things about my very first collection, Tales from the Midnight Shift. And, you know, you're always going to run into some people who are, you know, not quite as uh, kind or generous. But for the most part, I've I found a lot of camaraderie and acceptance and friendship in the horror community. Hmm. Do you... Is it important for you to... Like, okay, so you mentioned some people who have championed your work um do you find it important to give back similarly have you found ways to help other writers or or to advocate works that you like uh i definitely think that's an important thing uh we're all in this together i don't really have a competitive feel for the horror genre like if someone has a huge success you know the human nature says you're going to be a little jealous but i I absolutely champion that um, because it's not a competition. I don't have to be better than someone else. I just want to be 
as good as I can be. Hmm. Um, so if I'm as good as I can be and I'm still never the best, that's okay with me. I don't need to be the best. I just want to be as good as I can be. And I want to support everyone else. And I do think it's important. Um, a lot of times, you know, if someone asks if I'll read a book early and give a blurb, I'll definitely say, you know, yes, because other authors have read my stuff early and given me blurbs. Mm -hmm. Um, when, just when I read a book I love, I just want to be a cheerleader for it because I want people to know about it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I'm definitely a big proponent of supporting writers that you respect, uh, and works that you love. Um, and so I'm always going to be a big cheerleader for other writers. Also, just from a promotional standpoint, that also makes like when I like when I have this book out and I'm probably obnoxiously posting about it, I think it makes it a little easier to take because I, I'm not only ever posting about myself, but about the other books and writers that I love. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, do you consider yourself a reader first and a writer second? It's probably the best way to visit. That's a hard one for me to answer because they both feel so hardwired into me. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine life without writing, but I also can't imagine life without reading. And I feel like they're both just wrapped up in a general love of stories. I just am in love with stories. Mm -hmm. I'm in love with reading good stories. I'm in love with writing good stories. Um, so they're both very sort of intertwined for me. I guess if I had to say which one I feel more strongly, I guess I feel like a writer is just an innate part of who I am. And mm -hmm. if I don't do it, and there was a period of time after college where life stress got in the way and I wasn't really doing it, then I don't feel complete. Mm -hmm. So I guess writer does come first, but both of them are just very much a part of who I am. Great answer to a question I just sprung on you. <laughs> so um, those were all my questions. Uh, is there anything that you think we should have talked about or anything you want to let us know about? Um, I think that's it. I mean, like Bookhaven is out now and I, I do have that collection that's coming out probably end of August with Unnerving. Mm -hmm. Um. So I think I got all that in. <laughs> yeah, and, cool. Uh, I'll have a couple of more novels, two novels that I've sold to Crystal Lake Publishing. Um, those don't have release dates yet, probably sometime uh, next year. Wow, excellent work. Um, looking forward to all. So there you have it. That was Mark Allen Gunnels. Bookhaven and Other Curiosities is out now with Crystal Lake Publishing. The Daylight Will Not Save You is out later in the year with Unnerving. More novels to come from Crystal Lake Publishing. If you are a reader, writer, editor, anyone with anything you want to tell me about this podcast, you want to come on the show, you know, whatever it is, you can always get in touch with me using losingtheplotpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to hearing from you. But that's all from me for now. So thank you for listening and bye bye.